We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, and wherever you find your podcasts. When you can't talk about a topic or tiptoe round it, things normally go from bad to worse. Today on the podcast, I'm going to discuss two topics, each of which makes us embarrassed and clam up, the menopause and sex. When the two topics come together, the opportunities for unstated assumptions, misunderstandings and unresolved anger are enormous. Even when we think we are cool, modern people and okay talking about sex, at least with our friends, it does not take much for old patterns to rear up. And when it comes to men and women discussing the menopause, I wonder if we've moved forward at all. My witness today is Beth Wallace, who is an Irish psychotherapist and psychology graduate who has spent 33 years helping people maintain satisfying relationships with themselves and others. What in your childhood prepared you for talking about difficult topics? (laughs) That's a great question, Andrew. I would say nothing. Absolutely nothing in my childhood prepared me in a positive way for talking about difficult topics. I certainly experienced a lot of difficult experiences, and I think that perhaps is the preparation. So I I believe very strongly that, and the evidence is there to support that, that in the telling of the truth of our traumatic experiences, there is healing, and, and the telling of truth is essential to our healing from traumatic experiences. And I think that is what was the preparation for me, was experiencing various things like being born in a mother and baby institution, being adopted, being sexually abused as a child. These were all experiences that were very hard to come to terms with. But the telling of the truth around those and the processing of what those experiences did to me, the impact they had on me, that was the preparation. Because the alternatives to the truth are not particularly appealing, really, are they? I understand why people prefer secrets and lies over the truth. The truth can be incredibly difficult, both to acknowledge to oneself and to articulate to others. And especially for people who were, say, who were adults in a situation where a child is harmed and those adults maybe didn't see or unconsciously chose not to see what was happening, or saw what was happening and didn't act on it, didn't protect that child. To admit that truth, you know, just to pick one truth out of that kind of really soupy, swampy mess of truth, that can be really, really difficult. And I get it. I appreciate it. It's easier not to see. It's easier not to acknowledge. But ultimately, I'm 55 in maybe six weeks. And in my experience of life, The truth always, always is better out, always. When I was researching you, one of the sort of interesting things is you've lived and worked all over the world. Have you found any great cultural differences or is this a universal Mm. issue? 
I think it is a universal issue for sure, but the flavor and the texture varies according to the cultural difference for sure. So I grew up in Ireland. I grew up in Ireland in the 70s and 80s, which was, you know, soaked really in shame in relation to sex, anything to do with sex and sexuality, particularly in relation to women's reproductive rights, but also in relation to men. So that has a very unique texture to it. I also lived and worked in Canada, and I've worked with people who are from other, what could be called new world countries. And also I've worked significantly with people who are are in and from Muslim majority countries. And so I see a very unique texture in people who are from what I would call new world countries, where there is a freshness, there's an openness that doesn't exist or certainly hasn't existed, for example, in Ireland, in older Europe. And of course, there's a very unique flavor and texture to how sex and sexuality expresses itself or is really not allowed to express itself at all in Muslim majority countries. So particularly we might, this might be most obvious, for example, in how women are constrained in terms of what they look like and how they must hide their bodies because their bodies are just simply too enticing to men. And the onus is placed upon a woman to hide herself rather than a man to control himself. So there are very different, you know, cultural nuances. And and we see in Western countries how the female form, for example, the female body is commodified, commercialized, used as advertising. And we don't see that in Muslim majority countries. The difference there is really stark. You know, you'll see, I used to live in Toronto, and so you'll see, you know, a naked female body draped across a car with the purpose of selling the car. Whereas you would never see that in a Muslim majority country simply does not happen. So while the difficulty, the challenge is very much there, how it shows itself is different and how it, how it sort of exhibits itself is different. So let's come through to the topic of the menopause. What's your own mm-hmm. personal experience been like with it? Mm. So I'm now about four years post-menopause myself. So I'm at that point where things have settled, hormones have settled, things are, are how they're going to be for the foreseeable future for me in terms of my hormonal experience. I would have started perimenopause around about 45, except I didn't know that I was starting perimenopause at that age because I didn't recognize the symptoms. And I think this is super common. And in my experience, this is really common for the majority of women that, you know, our narrative around the menopause is your menstrual cycle will change. It will become longer or shorter. Your periods, your bleeding will become heavier or lighter and there'll be some night sweats. And that's pretty much it. However, you know, the spectrum of symptoms that a woman can experience in perimenopause are a lot broader than that. So I didn't recognize that that's what was happening when I was feeling increased. Well, I'd never felt social anxiety before. So that appeared out of nowhere in my mid 40s. And I didn't associate it with menopause, whereas it very clearly is associated. Incredible problems with insomnia. And I, again, didn't associate that with perimenopause, but it very clearly was. You know, it would have been a running joke with my friends that Beth can sleep anywhere for as long as she wants up until I was 45. That changed very definitely. And so it was confusing for a few years until I realized, ah, okay, that's what's going on. And then my libido had been very strong up until that point and it tanked. Shortly after menopause, it completely tanked. I had, we can go into this in more detail, but I would have been a woman who experienced spontaneous desire 
So I would have been a woman who would have felt sexual arousal and sexual interest kind of out of nowhere for the majority of my adult life. That changed on menopause, and that's really, really common for women. And my desire for a period of time became responsive desire. So if somebody else approached me, if a partner or a lover said, I'm interested in sex, I would need to kind of get there rather than be immediately on board. And it's hormonal. You know, there, there's no two ways about it. It is hormone related. And so that's now changed. Spontaneous desire has come back, but it's a little different to how it used to be. And I think this is crucial, you know, is that a lot of these things we do not talk about. We, we don't talk about lots of, as you highlighted in the introduction, we don't talk about menopause and we certainly don't talk about sex and the menopause for lots of different reasons, I think. So, I mean, it seems like a really important conversation that we should be having. Why is this such a, a sort of incendiary combination, do you think, the menopause and sex? Personally, I feel that there is a cultural and societal influence that views women of a certain age in a certain way. That women prior to the menopause, we are in our reproductive years. We have reproductive capital, as the evolutionary psychologists would call it. And so when we are no longer in our reproductive years, our value changes, our value shifts, or our perceived value that's much more important to insert that word perceived, our perceived mm. value changes. Our value doesn't change at all, but how we're perceived in our culture and our society changes. We are of less value. We're perceived as having less value, perceived as having less worth. We're less interesting to men who want to reproduce. And so we're viewed as almost sexless females at that point. And I think we don't do ourselves any favours in that a lot of women are happy not to be seen in that way once we get to a certain age. And I know I certainly noticed a fall off in male attention during my late 40s and early 50s, and I was relieved by it. However, that then has a consequence of, well, how do I see myself as a sexual being? Now that less men are interested in me, how does that alter how I see myself, how I experience myself? So I think a lot of it is cultural. And I think we absorb those cultural messages and we take them on and we internalize them and we believe them about ourselves. So I think that's a, a big piece of it. But why should it be a, a problem often between husband and wife? Because, you know, that most husbands with women going through the menopause are not thinking, oh, can't have any babies anymore. I'm not interested in you. So it might be sort of men in general, but why is it so difficult for husband and wife who should be able to talk about these things? Why is it so difficult for them to discuss it? Mm, great question. In my experience, the more difficult it is for a couple to speak about these issues is in direct proportion to how much they have spoken about those issues throughout the life of their relationship and the nature of the sex that they've had in their relationship. So say, for example, you have a couple who've been together 30 years and their sexual relationship has revolved around intercourse. It's revolved around penis and vagina sex. And it's been quite orgasm focused, which mm. for the majority of heterosexual couples is the case. Yep. And a woman gets to a point where perhaps intercourse becomes painful because the drops in estrogen are causing her to be less 
lubricated. They're causing perhaps a little, and I think this expression really just inserts fear into the bones of every woman, can cause vaginal atrophy. And simply what that is, is just the retraction of tissues in the vulvar area because of, of decreased estrogen. So sex, penetrative sex can become painful. And for some women, it can become so painful that they actually don't want it anymore They, mm. they because it's really so uncomfortable. But if the relationship, if the sex life between those two people in that relationship has centered around intercourse, what do we do now? We've got to have a conversation about, wow, okay, so our sex life needs to change. What we do needs to change. We need to talk more openly and freely about what we like and want and enjoy and don't want and don't enjoy. And that that needs a a significant level of self-awareness. It needs a very significant level of confidence on the part of both of those people. And the seems, and I want to fight back against it, but I'm going to say it anyway, there seems to be a hierarchy of sex that penis and vagina is real sex, mutual masturbation and oral sex is sort of second class sex. I mean, is this something 100%. that you hear as well? Yeah, 100%. And it's sort of like, well, these are the starters on the menu, you know, oral sex, mutual masturbation, etc. These are the starters, but the main course is intercourse. And if we don't have that, then we haven't had sex. And I think that, you know, largely that comes from, like, if we look at mainstream media, we look at movies, for example, and we look at sex scenes in films, they are 9.9 times out of 10, if it's a heterosexual coupling, they are 9.9 times out of 10 intercourse focused. You know, you look at the very passionate scene, you've got a couple who meet each other, they're hot for each other, they go out into a back alley, it's penis and vagina. There's no, like, that's it. And she comes within... Absolutely. And she orgasms within like two minutes of a penis entering her vagina. No, 80% of women do not orgasm from penetration alone. We know this. But the Let cultural, alone in back alleys. Right. Yeah, exactly. But the cultural narrative is, oh, well, that's what sex is. That's what both people want. No, that's a very male-oriented way of looking at sex. That is, you know, the penis and the vagina are not the same. The penis is not analogous to the vagina. The clitoris is analogous to the penis. So the clitoris is where the vast majority of women will experience their sexual pleasure. And the vast majority of women will need clitoral stimulation in order to orgasm together with penetration, but not penetration on its own. But we focus on, you know, the pleasure of the penis rather than the pleasure of the clitoris. Mm. Do you think one of the other problems is that the attitudes of our previous generations suddenly comes to the fore when we come to the menopause? Hmm. I certainly think that for a lot of the women I work with, you know, I'm running a course at the moment, for example, and it's a 30-day course. And the beginning part of the course is self-reflection on what were the messages that you heard growing up or what were the messages that you heard and that were unspoken in relation to women of this age and specifically around menopause and specifically around sex. And so it's very interesting. What I hear from women is the menopause was never discussed. Sex was never discussed. And certainly the menopause and sex were never discussed together. And the unspoken message is there's nothing to talk about here. There's nothing to see. And so even just in our family of origin, even just in the environment in which we grow up, we are absorbing all of that information, probably more of what's unspoken than spoken. 
And that contributes to our own beliefs about ourselves, our experiences and our relationships. And certainly, you know, if we go back further in time, we inherit, you know, culturally on a community basis and on our own individual family, we inherit the beliefs of our ancestors to some degree. But I think that, you know, the current generation of women, certainly in the Western world, have an opportunity to change that narrative because there is now so much more discussion about these topics. And possibly talk about it to their daughters. Right, exactly. And talk about it freely and openly in a way that their daughters can see that this is nothing to be shameful of. This is nothing to be afraid about talking openly about. It is going to happen to every single female. You know, 51% of the population of the world is going to experience menopause. Now, for the vast majority of women, that will be somewhere between their mid-40s and their mid-50s. For a minority of women, that will be as a result of something else. So say, for example, a hysterectomy or cancer or something like that. But every female will experience it. So what's the most important thing that men need to know? I think there are three things. For me, there are three things. One is the factual information, like what are we actually talking about here? What is perimenopause? What is menopause? How does it affect a woman, not just physically, but also psychologically? And that information is really easy to get. There are some books that are really essentially have all the information in them now. There's plenty of information on YouTube and other such sources. So getting accurate, evidence-based accessible information about what's really happening on a physiological and a, and a psychological level for a woman. I think being able to take yourself out of the center of your sexual experience as a couple. So this is not just about you, you know, husband. This is about us. The menopause is affecting our relationship. How are we going to prepare for that? What are we going to do to ensure that we maintain a good, strong, satisfying, intimate connection with each other moving forward? That would be the second thing. And there was a third and I've now, oh, right. Yes, there, there it is. It's the menopause brain. The third then is being open to a variety of sexual experimentation and experience. So taking the focus perhaps away from intercourse, if that's where it's been, and trying other things, trying different things and exploring and experimenting together. They would be the three things that I think can be most useful. Because it is a really good time to update and think again, because what I find is a lot of people, when they come together, find something that works for them sexually. Mm -hmm. And although they will go to, on holiday to different places and they'll go to different restaurants and you know they wear, wear different clothes from when they first met, somehow when we find something that works, we stick with it, which can be a little bit boring as well. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a, a wonderful opportunity to sort of update and think about your fantasies. Mm -hmm. But I think the problem is. Telling somebody about your fantasies, particularly your wife or particularly your husband, is terrifying because, you know, fantasies say something about us and it might say something about us that's a little bit uncomfortable. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you wholeheartedly. This is an amazing opportunity if both people in the relationship can see it as an opportunity as opposed to a threat in any kind of way you know, a threat to our relationship or a threat to my physical well-being, any of those things. I think it's an amazing opportunity to, okay, this particular activity is now off the agenda for us as a couple, maybe. What are the other billion things we can do to enjoy our own bodies, each other's body? Because there are a billion different other things. 
One of the things that I've found couples find really useful is there's an organization or a group called the Gottman Institute, founded by John and Julie Gottman. And so that's where my, my couples training originates. And they have a free card app that can be downloaded onto a phone. There's several different sections in the app. Some of them are more spicy than others. For some people, they're not going to find that spicy at all. Some are kind of conversation starters. I would usually recommend to people to start with something like that because the app is asking the question, not your partner, or you are not asking the question. So it takes a little bit of the heat out of the conversation. It takes a little bit of the risk out of the conversation. Esther Perel also has a, a card app, which I would recommend. So give us an example of the sort of question that we might find in those. Okay. So it might be something like, can you share with me some of, yeah, it might be some of your sexual fantasies, or it could be, can you share with me, can you talk about some part of your body that you really like to be touched that I might not be aware of? So say, for example, you know, going back to that point that you made earlier about how couples can tend to get into a sexual groove. This works, we keep doing it. And we forget, you know, oh, I forgot that I knew 30 years ago that my partner liked having the back of his knee stroked. And he's just reminded me now that he likes that. So I'm going to pay attention to the back of his knees the next time we're making love. So it's an opportunity to be reminded perhaps of things that we forgot. It's a tool to have conversation that may, because a third party is asking the question. It's not anybody in the couple asking the question. So it may feel a little less threatening. Or maybe to do something you've never done before. You're exploring something like feet, for example. You know, exactly. You you haven't really thought about it, and you know, you might find an evening focusing on feet and washing them and stroking them and you know, giving each other a, a foot massage. You might find, well, you know, it was quite an interesting evening, but no, thank you. Or one of you or both of you might find, my gosh, there's an awful lot of nerve endings down there, and it's really sensual. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And equally, another possible outcome for that situation is that you both find it completely hilarious and you spend the whole evening laughing together over it. And then six months or six years from now, you remember that night that we spent, you know, exploring each other's feet? Wasn't that hilarious? And you've got a shared experience to look back on that is a bonding experience. You know, I think it's a, it's a great point that you make about the opportunity to try new things, try different things. And that needs, that requires quite a high amount of confidence on the part of both people because you're taking the risk. What if I'm not good at it? What if my partner doesn't like it? Will mm. I feel rejected? Will I feel like I'm less of a lover, less of a partner if they don't like what I'm doing? So there's risk all over the place. I would say start slow, start small. Start with something like the Gottman card app or Esther Perel's card app. And go from there rather than let's, you know, we've had a very vanilla experience of our sex life for 30 years. Let's go to a BDSM torture dungeon. Like keep, you know, keep the, the steps small and, you know, non-threatening to begin with. Sounds like a recipe for a heart attack, if you ask me. Absolutely. <laughs> so we've talked about women aging. Do you think that men need to talk about aging? We have something called the andropause for men. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's very different, you know, and physiologically and psychologically, it's different. But there are changes in midlife for both sexes. And I think it's essential that that conversation also happens. 
again, in a similar way, you know, what is happening physiologically, what's happening psychologically, what impact is that going to have on how we relate to each other, both physically and emotionally. And the ability to be able to do that honestly and openly is essential for every heterosexual. Well, I mean, if it's two men together, then there's there's both of those people are going to experience that. And if it's two women together, then they're both going to experience menopause, perhaps at different times in the relationship. But I think they're essential conversations to be had for sure. But for men, as they get older, the andropause can bring decreased motivation, which can be mm-hmm. seen as a sign of relationship health. And the erection might be less um, predictable or reliable. And Mm -hmm. that can also be seen, unfortunately, by some women as, oh, you don't fancy me anymore. Exactly. And that's, that's the problem. When we take our partner's sexual expression personally, when we believe that how our partner expresses themselves sexually has something to do with who we are or a reflection of who we are, that's a recipe for disaster. So a woman's lack of desire for penetrative sex has nothing to do, for the most part, I'm sure possibly it does for some women, I can't, I would be reluctant to say always, but a woman's lack of desire or a lack of comfort, physical comfort around penetration during menopause is very unlikely to have anything to do with her male partner. Equally, a man's challenge around erection, achieving one, maintaining one, is also very unlikely to have any be any reflection of his view of or experience of his partner. And so when we take how our partner expresses themselves personally, that's a, a very dangerous route, I think, that we need to, where possible, try to view our partner's experience as theirs, not ours. Don't read things in. Ask. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, my experience is certainly that the making of assumptions is probably one of the most dangerous ingredients in any relationship, whether it's an intimate romantic relationship between siblings, work colleagues, friends, whatever. When we make assumptions about what someone else thinks or feels or wants based upon what they say or don't say, do or don't do, it's a recipe for disaster in relationships. So I would say, even though one might feel like it's obvious. Ask, always ask, am I understanding you correctly? Or would it be true to say that? I feel like this might be true, is it? Always ask for clarity. And is there something hormonally that can be done that is helpful over this period? Yes, very much. Say, for example, a lot of men will look at testosterone therapy and that can be helpful. A lot of women will look at HRT, so hormone replacement therapy. And there are two forms of hormone replacement therapy. There is systemic HRT, which basically, for a woman, every single system in the body has estrogen receptors. So every single physiological system in the body is affected by the drop in estrogen when we get into perimenopause. So taking systemic HRT, which will impact every system in the body, either through a tablet, a patch or a gel, can replace those drops in estrogen. Usually that's prescribed kind of to bridge the menopause period. So for five or six years, for a couple of years before menopause and a couple of years after menopause. And then there's localized HRT, which is applied to the vulva or the vaginal area. And that's either a tablet that's inserted into the vagina or a gel or a cream that's used externally on the vulva. 
And that is a teeny, teeny, tiny amount of estrogen in comparison to the dosage that would be contained in systemic HRT. But it has that teeny, tiny amount has a massive impact on the vulvar vaginal area. It can really bring a woman back to the same amount of lubrication she had before menopause. It increases blood flow to the area. It makes arousal easier, makes orgasm easier because 70%-ish of women will experience sexual dysfunction at some point during their perimenopause. And that can be anything from difficulty achieving orgasm. Perhaps she was a woman who could orgasm multiple times prior to menopause and now she can't. Perhaps she used to ejaculate and now she can't. Perhaps she can't orgasm at all anymore. And so localized HRT can really be helpful there, even if she's a woman who chooses not to take systemic HRT, which a lot of women do. But unfortunately, that tends to be based in very old research studies rather than the newer research studies. So is it a case of personal choice which avenue you go down, or is it a case that some menopauses need one thing and some menopauses need the other? Yeah, I think so. It's very individual. It's very unique. And I would strongly recommend that women talk to their GP or their family doctor. I think even if you're not feeling symptoms, I would say go to your GP, go to your family doctor somewhere around 45, 46 and talk about, okay, this is going to happen. What are my options right now? Given your knowledge of my family history, given your knowledge of my own medical history, what are we looking at in terms of options for the future? And I would say get ahead of the game and have that conversation before it needs to happen, before we're in a place of, oh crap, I'm not sleeping, my libido has tanked, what am I going to do? And there's a, there's a panic that can come along with that. I would say preempt it and have that conversation with your doctor a couple of years or a year or so before you need to. I have to say, it's just so refreshing having a straightforward conversation about sex, isn't it? You know, we're just yeah. talking about it. I'm not feeling any shame. You're not feeling any shame. And it's absolutely wonderful. Mm. What help would you suggest? How can couples have the sort of conversation that we're having? Because actually for us, because we're actually not involved with each other, it's a pretty low risk stuff and neither mm -hmm. of us are feeling at all anxious. So mm. how can the regular couple achieve this? Great question. And in my experience, I think, you know, one of the things that I enjoy about my work is supporting people at the early stage of relationship. You know, maybe working with a couple who are planning on getting married a year from now, and we would spend months doing some work together before they marry around, well, how do we create a relationship now at this early stage that is going to be one that thrives in the long term, that's going to be sustainable and successful and satisfying to us both in the long term? And I think these conversations ideally need to happen from the early stages of relationship. Because if you get to a point of being in your 40s, whether you're with a new partner or whether you've been with somebody for decades, and it's only now that those conversations are starting to happen, that is so much more challenging and so much more difficult than if you've always had those kinds of conversations. So from an ideal perspective, I would say as soon as a relationship forms, you know, in the early days, that's the time to start talking about what do you like? What do you want? What do you need? What about this? Maybe would you be interested in experimenting with that? That the conversation, even though it might be difficult in the beginning, that that's where it starts. 
And then by the time we're 20, 30 years down the road or six months down the road, and there needs to be a change in how we are with each other sexually, that conversation is going to be a lot easier. So prevention is better than cure, I think, in this regard. I use something that's called positive inquiry, because generally, if people are having problems with their sex life, the, what do they talk about? The problems. And right. the more you talk about the problems, the more the other person is going to get defensive, or you're going mm -hmm. to get defensive as well. And defensive and this topic doesn't work. So with positive inquiry, you talk about what does work, what you do enjoy. You know, what are the foundations that we enjoy? When, when sex was good, what did we enjoy about it? What were the conditions that helped us to, to do that? How can we build on that? These are all positive questions. Yeah. What did we enjoy that somehow we've forgotten about over the years? And how can we get those conditions back again? That is a much easier way to talk about it rather than a whole set of things that don't work. Yeah, um, I mean, if, if there are things that don't work, put them on a piece of paper and you can talk about them later. But talk about what works and what you like. Absolutely. And I think uh, just to add to that, I think one of the pieces that I, I find really useful and the couples that I work with find useful is to bring an attitude of appreciation and gratitude into the sexual experience with each other. So that might look like, I really love it when you touch me that way, or I really enjoy when you say those things that you say to me, so that we're acknowledging, like in the moment, we're saying to our partner, I love it when you do that. I really like it when you do this. I appreciate that you do this other thing. And that positive reinforcement kind of allows people feel good then about what is happening sexually in their relationship. Even if this actually only happens for a millisecond and it doesn't happen yeah. very often, focus on the good things. Tell your partner what you like. That can be really beneficial. It's so easy yeah. to talk about what we don't like. And it's so easy, I think, just in that context, it's so easy to compare our relationship, you know, the relationship between two people with what we think other people's relationships are like. So people will imagine, you know, oh, our friends, Jane and John, they must be at it like rabbits, you know, five nights a week. We imag I imagine that they have a, an amazing sex life. Chances are Jane and John don't have an amazing sex life because very few people have a consistently amazing sex life. But we compare ourselves to other people, both people that we know and also people that we see in the mainstream media. And I think here's where porn is a complete disaster for intimate relationships because it shows, you know, absolutely unrealistic situations, circumstances and people. And it is not an educational tool. And we can also compare ourselves positively. We can say, oh, you know, Jane and John never have sex sort of kind of thing. So therefore, it's okay for us. And that's not much better either. Right. Yeah, exactly. Comparison is really no good, no matter what way we look at it. But what you're saying is that once you've actually been through the menopause, then things are going to change again when you come out the other side. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I think it's important to know that the vast majority of women will spend approximately 40% of their life post-menopause. And so just to be really clear, when I use the word menopause, menopause is one day. Menopause, you know, if we, if we use the medical definition, menopause is the single one day, 12 months after a woman's last menstrual bleed. That is her day of menopause. It's, that's it. It's one day. 
So yeah. everything before that is perimenopause. Everything after that is postmenopause. So the average woman, you know, in Western world will spend about 40% of her life postmenopause. And that, you know, the, the drop in estrogen will continue to impact, for example, Postmenopausal women are at a significantly increased risk of cardiovascular disease, significantly increased risk of osteoporosis, and significantly increased risk of dementias, including Alzheimer's, simply due to the drop in estrogen. And so these are risks that need to be acknowledged and treated in some way. So, for example, postmenopausal women need to alter what they eat. They need to ensure that they're exercising in a way that is appropriate for their body, bearing in mind the drops in estrogen. So, you know, the impact post-menopause of the estrogen drops are lifelong and they will continue to increase with age. And that's really, really important for women to acknowledge and recognize that, you know, it's not menopause is done, that one day is over, and now everything is kind of as it's going to be for the rest of my life. It doesn't work like that, unfortunately. And is there different responses when it comes to sex from woman to woman, or is there a, a general trend? Mm. Interestingly enough, I think we can very often focus on, you know, and it is a very significant number, 70% of women experiencing sexual dysfunction to a degree is a very significant number. But it's also important to say that around 7% of women will experience increased libido around this time of their lives. And, you know, I've certainly had women say to me, there must be something wrong because I'm actually more turned on and I'm more interested in sex. I'm like, well, well done you. You're one of the 7%. That's, you know, that's great for you. But there is very definitely an individuality to the experience. So it very much will depend on, does a woman take HRT? Is she altering her diet? Is she doing pelvic floor exercises, for example? Is she focusing on increasing and maintaining good blood flow to the genital area? Because if we don't do that, then we will get decreased sensation. We will get decreased arousal, decreased ability to orgasm. So, you know, for me, I like to view it as paying attention to the genital region for a menopausal woman needs to be viewed like brushing our teeth, like going to the optometrist, like having any bumps or moles or anything checked out by your GP. We now need to pay at this time of life regular attention to our genitals. And it needs to be viewed in a way that, well, I brush my teeth every day to keep them healthy. I need to pay attention to my vulva and my vagina every day to keep it healthy. Because the estrogen is no longer doing that work for me, I need to now take control and be conscious and deliberate and intentional about it. So you give seminars on self-pleasure. What do you need to teach? Right. I think, you know, going back to a point that you made earlier about very often we'll find something that works. And we'll stick with that in a groove, you know, and when it comes to masturbation, for example, very often people will learn in childhood or adolescence, they'll learn what gets them off. They'll learn what gives them an orgasm and their masturbation will be very orgasm focused. It won't necessarily be pleasure focused. And the two are very, two very different things. We can spend an hour pleasuring ourselves and not have an orgasm, or we can spend two minutes trying to orgasm and then that's it, we're done. And that will, you know, will relieve pressure, it might relieve anxiety, it might help somebody go to sleep, it might relieve sexual frustration, but it isn't pleasure focused. So there's a massive difference between having an orgasm versus experiencing pleasure. And equally, when the vast majority of people begin masturbating, they will find what works. 
in order to produce the orgasm and they'll stick with that. And we know neuroscience is very clear that if we repeat a certain behavior over and over again, the neural pathway that's formed by that behavior in our brain becomes deeper and deeper. And therefore, it becomes harder and harder to experience pleasure in other ways. So if a person masturbates and does a particular set of activities in order to orgasm in the space of a few minutes, they do that for 20 years. What they're doing is they're teaching their body to only experience orgasm through those actions. And trying to experience pleasure and orgasm in other ways becomes more difficult. So a key component of self-pleasure is what gives me pleasure? What doesn't just give me an orgasm? And focusing on that. Exactly. Yeah. In order to increase those neural pathways, in order to increase the potential for experiencing pleasure in many different ways. And I think one of the ways in which this is beneficial for menopausal women and their partners is if a woman can experience pleasure in multiple different ways, through multiple types of touch, for example, then if it comes to a point in menopause where one particular sexual activity kind of doesn't really do it for her anymore or becomes painful or uncomfortable, she's got already in her sexual toolkit, she's got all these other things that she knows will work for her. And I'm thinking that if you're focusing on self-pleasure, and this is a much more leisurely sort of kind of journey rather than the dash to the orgasm you were describing, mm -hmm. there's room for fantasies to come up and images to come up of things mm -hmm. that might be pleasurable. Because, you know, if you just excuse the language whacking one off, <laughs> there's not much time or space for fantasy and exploration. Absolutely. And very often people will rely on... This is more so for men than women, I think, but people will rely, for example, on porn to support that, you know, rapid journey to orgasm. Whereas if you're really kind of sensing deeply and you're becoming intimate with your own body, you're becoming intimate with your own pleasure and your own thoughts and feelings and desires, that's just got much more potential for possibility. Would this interest me? Does that turn me on rather than going straight for it's like going to McDonald's is food. OK, <laughs> McDonald's is food, but it's not particularly nutritious or delicious, you know, and so that's that's the difference for me. And you don't have to use the drive through, do you? In any in any way, there's many ways that pun could be taken, but let's not go there. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can go for the, you know, I'll have a two minute dash to orgasm, thanks, and that's like the McDonald's version of sex. Versus, I'll spend forty minutes exploring my body, playing with my body, trying different things, using different objects, trying different fantasies. That's a bit more of a gourmet, you know, Michelin experience than the McDonald's. So actually, if you're a man, I have a whole edition of the podcast on that. I'll leave the details mm. in, the, um, in the show notes for that. And I'll also put uh, details in the show notes of Beth's classes as well. So in a moment, we're going to be going sort of down into detail, granular detail. I've got somebody who's written in to us with a, a problem that mm. fits very neatly into what we're discussing. And that's in a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits.
If you'd like to find out more about the programme, if you'd like to participate or you'd like to sign up for my newsletter, go to my website, andrewgmarshall.com. And you'll find there, participate in the programme and you can write to us. How do I balance being a good wife and what I want? Intercourse is often painful and to be honest, I don't feel often in the mood. From time to time I will try, but it has been many months since my husband and I had sex. My gynaecologist is looking into the possibility that I might be perimenopausal. I hope not, because I'm only in my 30s and would like another child, except not at the moment. I know my husband is frustrated. I sometimes think that's all he thinks about, and so am I. I want to feel desire, but I'm stuck in a downward spiral. I think many of the issues and topics that the listener has pointed to are, in my experience, super common. And I think it's a great way to point to lots of different issues. I was really struck by the, the first sentence, you know, how, and what struck me was, how do I balance? And I, I was interested in going back to a point I made earlier about a relationship is created by two people. A relationship is created equally by two people. So I sort of found her focus on herself interesting. And I'd love mm. to talk with her about, you know, do you feel responsible for the sex life in your relationship? Do you feel like it's somehow your job to be the person who takes care of that? Whereas I would be very much wanting to look at how do we balance what we want individually and in our relationship? So that was the first thing that kind of struck me. So how do you make that shift? You know, let's imagine mm. that uh, you've got this woman and her husband in front of you. How do they make that shift? So a very simple way of doing that would be inviting them just to change their language. So instead of me and I, can we shift? Where can we shift into we and us? Instead of it becoming, you know, about me and I, how can, and that's not always appropriate, you know, in various different situations in a relationship. But very often, I would very often see women who feel that somehow it's their responsibility to take care of the sex in their relationship, that they are somehow the gatekeeper of sex in a relationship. And to some degree, they are, but also their partner is also a gatekeeper of when and how sex happens. It's created by both people. So simply starting with a shift in language, can we move from I and me to we and us? Where can we do that? I would start with, with that conversation. But what if your fear is that your husband is always up for it? So, mm -hmm. you know, if he was the gatekeeper, my gosh, you'd be marching up the hill and down again all the time. Right. And I think, you know, there's two things around that. First is that I think there's a misconception that men are always up for sex. I think men are certainly, you know, and evolutionary psychology has a lot to say about this. I think that men, simply because of testosterone, are certainly much more interested in sex generally speaking, than women generally speaking are. But it's important to remember that, you know, men are not machines. They have emotions. Men are also impacted by stress when it comes to whether they want sex or not, whether they're in the mood or not. And to assume that a man is always up for it is perhaps not necessarily the most useful idea, I think. So what else would you say? So she, she talks about, you know, being a good wife 
And I was curious about that too, you know, like I think that we can very often have very fixed ideas about what a good wife is or what a good husband is or what a good relationship is. And I would want to unpack that a little bit. What does it mean? What does being a good wife mean? Who are you being a good wife for? Is it for yourself or for your husband or for the relationship or your kids? What is a good husband? And I think that, you know, certainly in my experience, a lot of women tend to internalize the difficulties and challenges in their relationship and they feel that somehow it's their fault. Whereas actually I, w- I keep wanting to come back to there's two people creating a relationship. So which piece is your responsibility? Which piece is his responsibility? Can we sort of untangle that a little bit? So a conversation around, well, what is a good wife? What is a good husband? What is a good relationship? What are the component parts of that? What are the ingredients of that? Might be a, another useful place to start. How much is the gynecologist going to be helpful or how much this is a relationship issue, do you think? Right. Yeah. I mean, it it certainly could be both. You know, when I work with female clients, one of my first questions in an intake session with a new female client is tell me the story of where you're at with your menstrual cycle. Because how our menstrual cycle is, what's happening with our hormones affects our mood. It affects how we feel about ourselves, about life, about all sorts of things. And so factoring in a woman's menstrual cycle into our therapeutic work is essential for me. So I think a gynecologist, I mean, there is no test for menopause because our hormone levels fluctuate on a daily basis. You know, hormone levels can be at one point in the morning and they can be doing something else in the evening. So there is no one test for menopause. So I think it's really important that people are aware of that. We can test for estrogen, testosterone, luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. And out of those, the follicle stimulating hormone will be the most reliable measure of where a woman is at in terms of her menopause journey. But it still won't be definitive. As long as her periods are regular, she's still bleeding approximately once a month, once every 28, 29 days. She could be experiencing significant drops in estrogen, but it's just not showing itself in her menstrual cycle. It might be showing itself in other parts, other systems in her body. So it's actually, it can be quite difficult for some women to know where they're at in their perimenopause. And there is no single test for it. So I think it can be useful to see a gynecologist, but it's not the complete, it's certainly not the complete picture. And I think it is always also a relationship issue. And what does it do to a woman's feelings about herself if she goes into menopause earlier? Mm, I think that really varies. And I think this is one of the reasons why I think it's important for if I'm working with a woman to explore, you know, what messages have you absorbed throughout your life from your family, your culture, your society in relation to your role as a woman, your role as a female? And, you know, how does your, whether you've had children or not, whether you wanted children or not, how does that impact? Does it affect your sense of your femaleness, your womanliness? How important is that to you? So I would say that for the vast majority of women, whether they've had children or not, is a significant, very significant part of their life, whether they wanted to have children and couldn't. And so the, you know, the onset of menopause for a woman who wanted to have children and couldn't can feel like the absolute final nail in the coffin of that lifelong held really important dream. And that can be devastating in terms of grief and loss. And so what's happening on a physiological level very much for a woman like that becomes secondary to what's happening for her on on an emotional level. 
And in my experience, a lot of women experience grief and loss at this time of life because there is something that they can look back on and say, I wish I had done or I wish I had not done. And now the chance is gone. The opportunity is over for whatever reason. And so grief and loss can be a really common emotion for women at this time of life. Well, we're coming towards the end of our interview, at least the main interview. And so I need to turn to you as a witness on The Meaningful Life to ask, what makes your life meaningful? Mm. I had to spend some time thinking about what my response was going to be and to this question. And I found that a really interesting experience to ponder that. It's not something that I've really given much thought to. And it relates to partly to my work, but also to my personal life. And very often people will ask, you know, how did you get into the work that you do? Because it's very, it's quite specific, it's quite unique. And my response to your question definitely plays a part. So for me, it's about alchemizing past traumas. So as I said earlier at the very beginning of the podcast, my early start in life was very far from ideal. And the consequences of those experiences they still unfold in me. I feel them still on a daily basis. In comparison to how I felt them in my teens and 20s, there is no comparison. But I, I still feel the after effects, the echo of those experiences. And for me, the most meaningful aspect of life is alchemizing those traumas, alchemizing those experiences, and turning them into a learning opportunity for myself, turning them into something that benefits my clients in some way, turning them into something that I'm reluctant to use the word healing or something that heals them, but something that changes their shape and their texture into something meaningful and something useful. That's deeply satisfying for me. I love the idea of alchemizing pain into something. The alchemists used to turn base metal into gold and exactly. learning can be gold. So I love that image. Exactly. So this is where we're going to end. But if you're a, a supporter of The Meaningful Life, we're going to discuss something sort of rather different. We're going to discuss consensual non-monogamy and polyamory. If you'd like to find out about that and hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material that way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.